Good to see you. This morning we're going to be carrying on in Hebrews, and uh, I've got to just confess to you, we're not going to preach a sermon this morning, okay? So if you don't like the sermon bit, you, good news, you've got a week off, okay? And if you love the sermon bit, I'm sorry, we're not preaching a sermon. We're going to do three other things this morning. I'm not going to preach a sermon. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to tell you a secret, and then I'm going to paint you a really glorious picture, and that will be with words. So it is a sermon. Okay, so depending on how nervous you were feeling then, just relax. It is still a sermon. I'm going to ask you a question, tell you a secret, and paint you a picture. And basically, the reason I'm doing that is to help us see a stunning thing in Hebrews chapter 2. And my job really is to get out of the way this morning. And if you could just see what God the Father says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. If you could just see that, I believe that it will do you great good. And that's the picture we're going to paint Uh, when we get to it. But first, I want to ask you a question, and it is an important question. It has four words, and this is it. Ready? Do you love Jesus? It's deep, isn't it? Do you love Jesus? Okay, is he a person who you have affection for? Are you warm to him? Do you you like him? (laughs) Do you love him? Are you drawn to Jesus? Now, that's actually the central question of the whole of the Bible to every human being, okay? Young or old, whatever race, gender, sexuality, background, that's the, be- the basic thing of Christianity. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, and you're, it's a big book, isn't it? Okay, a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of stuff in Christianity. Let me just help you strip it all back. The basic thread through the whole book <laughs> is here is a bloke called Jesus, <laughs> what do you make of him? Do you love him? And if you're a Christian here, particularly if you are, say, a really goody Christian, okay, I can see some. So maybe you come to church like two out of three Sundays, okay, you're pretty, pretty good, right? And maybe you even serve on a team, okay, wow. Maybe you even preach in a meeting like I'm doing today. I need to tell you that you have not graduated from the question, do you love Jesus, okay? You don't move on from that question in life. That is the question. God the Father does not look into Church Central West site this morning and say, let's have a look. Oh, great, they're all really busy. Brilliant, right? <laughs> I don't think he looks at my life and goes, oh, fantastic. He looks sincere. Hmm. Wonderful. Okay, God the Father asks us, always asks us, do you love my son? That's the question. Is he, is he, are you warm to him? Because God the Father loves his son, right? Uh, you remember the baptism of Jesus where Jesus gets dunked and, and as he comes up, heaven opens and there's a voice that bellows out, this is my son, look at him, I love my son, he's wonderful, I'm, I take so much pleasure in him. It's like God the Father loves Jesus <laughs> and his question to us is, what about you, do you love him? Now I think that my answer to that question is not as clear as perhaps I'd always want it to be. Okay, obviously I love Jesus, like card-carrying Christian, right? Ditch sports journalism to do youth work, right? Of course I love Jesus, right? But but actually, do I love him this, this morning? Is my heart warm to him? Of course I'm doing loads of stuff, but do I love this man? And actually sometimes my heart can get cold to Jesus. Uh, We run a midweek group in our house called a life group. And uh, every week at life group, we are meant to take communion, okay? Bread and wine or juice if we're 
feeling cheapskate. And what I do is I get the slice of bread out, okay, and I put it in the bread bin like a good boy, and then I forget about it, and we never do it, because I forget every week. And so what happens is I come back to my bread bin to make my lunch the next day, and I find this very hard bit of bread that was meant to be soft and nutritious and delicious and warm, but actually, because it kind of just went a bit cold and a bit stale, it's actually now quite rigid, and you can't eat it unless you want to lose your teeth. And, and we use a different bit of bread next week, don't worry, at Life Crew it's fine. But my heart can get like that. My heart can wake up freshly cold to Jesus every day. My body refreshes when I get into bed and my mind calms down and I go to sleep and I wake up and I feel refreshed, but my heart seems to have rewound and gone backwards and I've forgotten the goodness of God and I wake up a bit disinterested each day. My heart, the Bible says we can lose our love. And that's actually what was happening in Hebrews, okay? This letter we're looking at, that was communicated to a group of Christians who love Jesus, of course, they ditch their stuff to follow Jesus, of course they love Jesus, card-carrying Christians, but actually they were tempted to leave Jesus because their hearts had grown hard to him, and they lost their love, and they'd come from a, a, a Jewish background, and uh, that was slightly controversial to follow Jesus from a Jewish background, and, and actually their families and friends were having such a go at them that they were just ready to turn away from it all because they had not got a warm heart to the Son of God anymore. And so the unashamed, unapologetic agenda of the writer to the Hebrews, and just going to be cards on the table, of me this morning, (laughs) is to motivate love for Jesus in the people who were reading the thing or listening to his sermon or whatever it was. He wants to motivate an enduring, persevering love for the Son of God. That's his game, okay? And that is my game this morning. And that's what we're going to play, whether you want to play it or not. That's what we're doing, (laughs) okay? Now, here's that's the question I want to ask you. Here's the secret I want to tell you. Because here's an interesting thought. If you were the writer to the Hebrews, or you were Rich Pitt speaking this morning, and your goal was to motivate love in the hearts of people for Jesus, how would you do it? Okay, how would you go about it? How would you win a heart to love Jesus? And here's the secret, okay? And this is for you if you're a parent and you're trying to grow your children up to love Jesus, right? You don't want to grow them up to just be behaved people. Like, that might be easier, but, <laughs> but really, that's not the goal. The goal is to grow hearts that love him. And how do you win a heart? That's your goal if you're trying to seek your friends and your family or, or come to your, work, your work colleagues come to know God. You're trying to win a heart. You're not trying to change their behavior. Because if you were just trying to change their behavior, you just stick them in a straitjacket or give them a list of rules and job done. You're trying to win a heart to affection. How do you do that? And how do you do that for your own heart? If you are like me and you wake up with a little bit of a cold heart to Jesus... And you're coming along to Westside and you're not all guns blazing yet. How do you win your own heart to love him? And here's the secret, okay? The secret is the writer to the Hebrews does one thing. He shows them Jesus, okay? He shows them Jesus. He doesn't primarily shout at them, you should love Jesus. You should. That is morally right. Now it is, isn't it? Like he's God, (laughs) and I'm not, and you're not, so we should love him, we should obey him, but to be shouted at, you should love Jesus, that doesn't motivate affection, does it? 
It's basically law. Remember in the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament is, it's all good, it's all from God, it's all holy, it's all right, okay? It's all good, but what most of it is, is commandments telling us what we should do. You should love the Lord your God, that's right. You shouldn't do these things, that's right. But here's the thing that everybody realized about the Old Testament, was that law doesn't produce love in you. It gets it on your agenda, and it tells you that, oh, I should think about loving Jesus again. But it doesn't produce love, okay? He doesn't shout at them. He shows them Jesus. Because that's how love works. So I love uh, Shawshank Redemption. That's my favorite film. Is that trendy enough? Is that all right? Yep, yeah, great. Great, great, great. I mean, my real favorite film is like Toy Story. But that doesn't go down as well in sermons. So Shawshank Redemption is very deep. And, uh, and I love it. Okay, now, how do I love Shawshank Redemption? What happened there? Was it because loads of people said, Oi, Shawshank Redemption, you should love it. And I go, oh, okay. Right, that's not how it works with love, is it? How do I love Shawshank Redemption? Somebody showed me Shawshank Redemption. And I went, wow. It is lovely. <laughs> so I love it. I respond in love to something lovely, and Morgan Freeman's husky voice, it's just wonderful. And that's why I love it, because being shown something lovely will win my heart. And that's the secret. He wants to hold up Jesus and go, look at this guy. He wants to stick the DVD in of Jesus and go, Hebrews, who attempted to wander away from Jesus, look at him for a bit like a lot of time in Hebrews, like months, we're going to do. Look forward to it. Look at Jesus. And that's the secret. Now, let me just show you that this is in the passage, because um, we've been going for a few minutes, and I've not done any Bible, and that's naughty. So, in Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18, he starts off in verses 5 to 8 by quoting from an old psalm. And you might well relate to this psalm, he talks about a load of things that we don't see in the world. And basically he's saying, we don't see the world as we'd want it, okay? Humanity was meant to rule the world well, this psalm says, but humanity does not rule the world well. It's not doing that very well. It's meant to care for the environment, and we don't. It's meant to look after each other, and we don't. And he says, we don't see the world like we'd want it. We see gun violence. We see Oxfam workers doing their thing like that. And we look around and we don't see everything the right way. But we do see, verse 9, we do see something. We do see Jesus, verse 9. You look around the world and you're discouraged. The big agenda of the writer, remember? Look at Jesus. Get your eyes up. See what he's like. We do see Jesus, verse 9. Now, little fun fact uh, so far. You up for a fun fact? Yeah? Great. Thank you, Steve Babington. We're up for a fun fact. Fun fact is that so far in our sermon series on Hebrews, we have not talked about Jesus at all. You're confused, aren't you? Oh, what? That would be naughty for a church, right? <laughs> Jesus is greater is our branding. We should talk about Jesus. But so far, the writer to the Hebrews hasn't actually used that word, particularly in the original language. He hasn't used the word Jesus He's talked about him, but using these other titles for him. So in chapter one, you get the son. He's the son of God, okay? You get he's God, he even calls him. Just doesn't caveat it at all. He's God. And then he calls him Lord, okay? It's like he's been trying to show you the son of God in his divinity, okay? He's been going, 
Don't leave Jesus because he's the son of God. He's like massive and shiny and big. Don't leave him, okay? He's a big deal. He's not just a guy. He's a big deal. But now in chapter two, he calls him Jesus. Five times he uses his human name. He's emphasizing his humanity. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Five times in this passage, he wants to emphasize not simply the Son of God, but the Son of God became a human being, became one of us, walked down the staircase of the universe and was born among us. And that's his big idea for this passage, that the Son of God from chapter 1 becomes Jesus of chapter 2. There's a few verses on it in this passage. Verse 9 says that, do you remember Johnny preaching, Jesus is greater than the angels? Do you remember that? Look what the greater than the angels guy does in verse 9. Who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. That's interesting. Big guy comes lower. Verse 14, the son became flesh and blood. Verse 17, that it was necessary for big guy from chapter 1 to be made in every respect like us. Okay? That's the big idea in this passage. That the God of chapter 1 got born as the God-man of chapter 2. And it is quite a scandalous thing. Look at these um, images. I don't know if these will help you just get a grasp of what's going on. These images that are coming up. Three, two, one. Ta-da! Any second now. They'll come up in a minute. Uh, These images that show us uh, why... There we go. Thank you. Why the Son of God from chapter 1, who had that as his view every day, like king of the cosmos, would become a little boy, a refugee boy, in chapter 2, become Jesus. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would you? What do you do with your power? You don't throw it away, do you? (laughs) What do you do with your nice view? You look forward to it. (laughs) Jesus gives it away, comes in and becomes one of us. And now we're going to paint a picture, okay? You ready for the painting a picture? With words. <laughs> we're going to paint a picture that's going to tell us in vibrant color why the Son of God would become a human being. Why the king of everything would become small. Why the rich one would become poor. Why the powerful one would become weak. And that's what the writer does now. He's, I say a, a picture. It's not so much a picture. as kind of like getting up a canvas and just chucking a load of paint at a canvas because it's now what we get in the next few verses is this kind of scatty, breathless rant about, this is amazing, he became a person, look at all these reasons, look at why he did it, he did it for this and this and this, and he just chucks up loads of stuff and says, look at it, okay? So we're going to paint a big picture of why the Son of God became a human being. And let me just give you some advice for the next 15 minutes or so. If you try and get every idea out of this next 15 minutes in all of its fullness, you will be very tired very quickly because we're going to look at some massive stuff that gets unpacked for the rest of Hebrews. But what I want to do is just get you to do this. Sit back. Okay, happy to do that. Sit back and just let your heart look at the Son of God for a bit. That's what I want you to do. I'm not going to tell you to do anything. I'm not going to shout at you. I just want you to look at the Son of God and I'm going to tell you about him for the next little while. Um, A writer uh, and a preacher called Richard Sibbs um, used to say, this is what we need to do when our hearts are cold and rigid. He says this, we need to be, quote, always under the sunshine of the gospel. 
That's how you get your heart right. Not the brutality of the law, do this, but the warmth of the good news of what the Son of God did for you. And you need to sit in that and let it melt your heart again. Okay, so we're going sunbathing, everyone. That's what we're doing. (laughs) Get your sun cream on, or don't. And we're going to sit in the sun warmth of the gospel. So here you go, sunbeam number one, slosh of paint number one of why the Son of God became a human being. He did it, ready, buckle in. So he could be our substitute, firstly, who died for us. That's why he comes down. So he could be our substitute who died for us. Uh, Verse nine says this, the Son of God became a human being and by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, it'd be a good story if the Son of God came down. It'd be a great story if the Son of God came down and died. But this says the Son of God came down and died for you. Now, just imagine you've not heard that before. I know that is water off a duck's back for a Christian. That is breathtaking, isn't it? He dies for you. Now, how does this work? little technical one minute here on how that works. The Bible says that Physical death, when your heart stops and your your breath stops, physical death is a symptom of the real disease. It's just a a bad symptom, (laughs) but it's just a symptom of the real problem, and the real problem is spiritual death. Physical death is a result of spiritual death. Sin, the Bible calls that. And what that is, is when there's the God of all life, the heartbeat of the universe, from everything, who from everything comes and everything goes back, the, the, doo-doom, 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 the, the middle of everything, the life giver, when we say no thanks to the God of life, we cut ourselves off from life, the Bible says. And if you cut yourself off from life, and the Bible says that that's the big problem, and physical death is simply the, the visual aid, the, the outworking of that. That we're born into the world cut off from life. And that's why we physically die. The Bible puts it somewhere else, doesn't it? The wages of sin is death. So if you put sin into the equation, okay, you put some sin in, what comes out of that is death. Now here's the thing. Son of God did never, ever, ever put any sin in to that equation. And so he doesn't deserve to die, does he? He never cuts himself off from life. He loves his father. He's always going, not my will, your will. He's always close to his father. He talks about him all the time. He never turns away from God. So he doesn't deserve to get the result of that. He doesn't deserve to die. And here's why he dies. He dies for us instead of people who put sin into the equation. And he says, I'll take the punishment for your sin so that you never have to. He's like a super sub. (laughs) Comes in and dies for us. Any Hunger Games fans? Hunger Games, yeah, like three. Good. It's a bit dated, isn't it, as an illustration, but I love it. I love it. Hunger Games is teen fiction made into a Hollywood movie. And how this is allowed to be a thing, because the Hunger Games is like a tournament where teenagers kill each other. And we've turned it into a kid's film. I'm not quite sure how that's okay, but I like it. Um, and, And in the Hunger Games... Uh, There's 12 little villages, and each of them have to put forward someone every year to take part in the Hunger Games, which is like a death tournament, okay? Teenagers hack each other to death, 
and it's a great film, okay? Uh, <laughs> you don't see the brutality, and if your parents don't allow you to watch it, they're right. Don't listen to me, listen to them, okay? So, Hunger Games, and what happens is um, there's a lottery to see who has to go in and be in this certain death, okay? And you want your strongest guy in that tournament for you, and shock of shocks, in the poorest district, region 12, district 12, this little girl gets picked. She's called Primrose Everdeen, this girl on the right. She's little and she's weak and she's trembling. And, and her number gets out of the drawer and she has to be volunteered to go into this tournament. And she's going to die. She's going to face certain death. And then, just as she's being dragged off, her big sister, the star of the show, Katniss Everdeen, who's like the female heroine for everyone. Katniss Everdeen, there's a hustle and a bustle and she shouts out, I volunteer. I volunteer. And she goes in to the death tournament so that Prim doesn't have to, because she loves Prim, but she doesn't want Prim to go in. So she chooses to go in instead. And the Son of God becomes one of us so he could shout over you, I volunteer, I volunteer. Just sit in the goodness of that. I'm not going to tell you to do anything. Just enjoy that this morning. He volunteered for you. That's slosh of paint number one. Let's paint this picture. Slosh of paint number two. He became our leader, okay, who was qualified through suffering. Verse 10 says this, God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory, many people into heaven, and it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering a perfect leader. Now, this is a controversial verse in the Bible, okay? We'll have a bit of a controversy on a Sunday morning. Um, in lots of translations, this says Jesus was perfected through his suffering. And theologians go, good grief, what does this mean? Jesus was already perfect, wasn't he? How can he be perfected if he was already perfect? We just said he never put sin into the equation. How can Jesus become more perfect? What does that mean? And that's why I think the better word to use is he was qualified to lead us through his suffering. A uh, little illustration. My mum, uh, who's a lovely person, uh, and she's looking after my little girl in tots at the moment, so if she can hear me, she's a lovely person. Uh, my mum was a primary school teacher, okay? And she was a very good primary school teacher, and she was the RE coordinator, nonetheless. And uh, she was at Cole Primary School, and something happened every now and again that sent chills through our family, okay? It was this word, oh, good grief. Okay, any teachers here starting to sweat and twitch? Okay, Ofsted, the inspection would come in. And back then, you got two terms notice for when Ofsted was going to come in, which was great because you could tidy up, but bad because, like, you, your whole year was defined by the fact you're going to get assessed. It was a bit of a nightmare for mum, not for me, who didn't care. Um, and in Ofsted, here's the thing that used to annoy my mum, was that the people doing the, the inspecting very, 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 very rarely had ever been a teacher. And so they would say, this is how you should teach. And my mom would say, well, well, you know, do your teacher training and do 40 years and then come and talk to me about it, you know. How do you know, right? To lead teachers, and if you're an offset inspector, Jesus loves you, it's fine. But it, to lead teachers, it might be a good idea to have taught because then you can speak with integrity into their experience. And to, to lead a suffering human being, it might be good for that leader to become a perfect leader by coming and being a suffering human being. 
And that's what the Son of God of chapter 1 says. Yeah, I'm not going to shout from afar. I'm going to do my teacher training and live it. I'm going to come in and live your life. So that when you ask this morning, is Jesus qualified to lead my life? Is he any good to lead me? He got a lot of wisdom because he's the son of God. And he came in so he could be your perfect leader. He knows what it's like to be you. So he's your substitute. You all right? You're sitting in the sunshine of the gospel. Just enjoy the good news. He's your substitute. He's your leader. Next, he is our brother who isn't ashamed of his siblings. Look at verse 11. This is a verse, all right? Wow. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Here you see something amazing. It would have been enough, I think, for the Son of God to come into our world to live our experience But here it says something different. It says that he came in to live our experience so that we might live his experience, that we would get his father, that we would get to share in what he has. He's the son of God, comes in to be one of us so that we can be children of God just like him. He comes in and like a big brother, gets his arm around us and says, they're with me, don't mess with them, okay? And if, if I've got a father in heaven, they now have a father in heaven. If I have a future, they now have a future because they're my brothers and sisters. Now, I had an interesting relationship with my sister. Um, Here she is. Um, This is us looking very cute. Very cute, aren't we? It's very snazzy clothes. Um, And here we are today. And we have an interesting relationship. I'd say we we, we have been friends with a lot of arguing, okay, throughout the years, okay? I'm sure my dad would agree. We we, we kind of generally would get on, but there was a few punch-ups. And um, she would win because she's taller than me. And... um, and, and, and here's the thing, I would slate my sister all the time, right? And she would slate me all the time, and she'd kick me, and I'd punch her, and, you know, whatever. But if somebody else slates my sister, <laughs> like, I know I'm short and weak, but I'm going to try and come after you, <laughs> okay? Because she's my sister. She's my flesh and blood. And the same was true for me. When I'm in hard time, she sticks up for me because she's my sister, because you stick up for your flesh and blood. And now, why does the Son of God become flesh and blood? So he could be your brother and stick up for you. And he's not ashamed of you, this verse says. Just click back to the verse. It says he's not ashamed of you. Even if you're ashamed of yourself, he's not ashamed of you. He's dealt with your shame because he volunteered. He's not ashamed of you. You're more likely to be ashamed of him than he is ever to be ashamed of you. He's your brother. He loves you. Not ashamed of you. So he's your substitute. Just sit in it. Sit in the sunshine. Let it do your heart good. He's your substitute. He's your leader. He's your brother. And now, let's get manly. He is our champion who defeated the devil, okay? Our champion who defeated the devil, our enemy. If you're confused about why we talk about the devil, uh, we talk about the devil because Jesus talked about the devil, and Jesus says that the devil is real, and, but we're not always banging on about him for what I'm about to show you, because the Jesus, the champion, defeated him, okay? Look at this verse, verse 14. The son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Now, when I say 
we're going to get manly and talk about the champion. What do you picture? You picture flexing muscles, war paint Jesus, Rah! defeating the enemy. Yes. But this verse helps us love the Son of God because it says that he defeated the devil by dying, by laying down his life. Now, how does that work? How does that defeat the devil? How does that take the power off the enemy? I think it's this. The main thing that Satan has against us, the main weapon in his hands, is to accuse us of our guilt before God. To say, you are guilty. You are guilty. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. You're guilty. And he does that relentlessly. And here's why it's a powerful weapon. It's a powerful weapon because in and of ourselves, it is correct. It is true. We are guilty before God in and of ourselves. And then the Son of God volunteers and dies and goes to the cross and says, I'll take all the condemnation for my brothers and sisters so that when you, Satan, in 2018, start piping up, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, Christians can say, I know I should be, but Jesus volunteered. Jesus takes the condemnation bazooka of the devil that he loves to throw at us or shoot at us and he turns it on himself on the cross and he says, I'll be condemned. I'll deal with it all so that whenever Rich Pitt feels condemned by Satan, he can look Satan in the eye and say, no, because Jesus died for me and all of your condemnation, get away, get away. It's been done. Now, the devil still works in our lives, and at the end of time, Jesus will get muscly and get his war paint on and get rid of him forever. But when Satan accuses you, you can say, Jesus volunteered for me. Back off. Jesus breaks the power of the devil. Now, we're running out of time quickly, so let's get our skates on. He's our substitute, our leader, our brother, our champion. Next slosh of paint, he's our liberator. Our liberator who frees fearful slaves, it says in these next verses. Verse 15, only in this way could he set free, do you see that language? Liberate all who have lived their lives, does this describe your experience? As slaves to the fear of dying. Now there's so much we could say uh, about that (laughs) with no time. But here's a couple of things. Jesus does not set us free from dying in this verse does he? Because Christians still die, right? We know that. We know Christians who die. I will die. Unless Jesus comes back before then, I'm going to die, okay? He doesn't set us free from dying, but he sets us free from the fear of that moment. And here's why. Without Jesus, when you die, all your meaning, all your relationships end. And that's a fearful thing. And you meet God. You meet a just God who knows your life and knows what a mixed bag I am and we are. And you meet that God when you die. You do. It says you're destined to die and then face judgment. That is a fearful thing. But Jesus volunteered. And Jesus took my judgment, and Jesus dealt with my sin, which means that when I meet God, which I will, and I, in that sense, face judgment, I'm judged by God, the verdict will be, come on in, my beloved son. You're Jesus' brother. 
Come on in. Because my sin is gone. If you're a Christian, your sin is gone. And so you need not fear death. And actually, rather than death being the the full stop on my relationships and my meaning and my joy and my purpose, death is the entry to the real deal of my relationships and my meaning and my purpose. Because Jesus volunteered. He has liberated me, not from dying, but from the fear of dying. And with our time gone, the last thing he is, and this is an idea that comes up all the way through Hebrews, I'm not going to steal anyone else's thunder, is he is our priest who helps us. That's the last idea. And as I say, I'm not going to steal any thunder. Let me just read these verses for you. Last thing Jesus is in this passage. We also know, verse 16, that the Son did not come to help angels. He came, why did he come? To help the descendants of Abraham. That's, that's people who believe God's promises. Verse 17, therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice, as we've seen, that would take away the sins of the people. Verse 18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. He's our priest who helps us. Priest... Jesus is a priest, Jesus got a dog collar. What does this mean? <laughs> no, priest in the Bible means go-between. Jesus is our go-between. It's like this, in the Old Testament, there was two sides of this relationship. There was on this side, congratulations, God. Okay, well done. God, holy, good, just, massive, big. Okay, and on this side, my bad, there's people, okay, who are a mixed bag, and have unjustness, injustice in them, and sin in them, and they are not holy. And never the two shall meet in the Old Testament, because if sinful people meet holy God, bad idea, okay? You want to welcome God's presence in your meeting? Don't do that in the Old Testament, unless you know what's coming, because holy God, sinful people, bad idea. There's a big old curtain in the middle of the temple to represent no-go area. These two things cannot coexist. But there was a priest. Ah, there was a priest who was the go-between. The priest was one of these guys who was allowed to walk in here and could say, God, I just want to bring their needs to you. And then he was allowed to come over here and say, God says this. God's like this. God forgives you. God does this. Now, who would be the greatest priest ever to represent God to man and man to God, and God to man and man to God? A God-man. That would be an amazing idea. And that's what this passage says, that he became our priest, who belonged in here. Chapter 1, he's the son of God, and he belonged in here. And he could say, I'll go and represent us to them. And he goes over and he says, this is what God's like. Look, when I come into the world, this is what God looks like. He loves people. He heals people. He forgives people. I'm what God's like. And then he could die and rise again and go back. And then he could say, I know what it's like to be them. Can we help them? Father, would you bless them? I know what it's like to be Steve because I've lived it. Can you help them? I know it's like to be Verity, to be Elliot. Can you help them, God? He's our God-man priest who represents God to us and helps us in our time of need because he's lived our experience. If that's too big an idea, that gets looked at for like the next 
eight weeks or something. So you'll get it. So here's your question when I finish. Do you love Jesus? You love Jesus. Oh, our hearts get a bit hard, don't they? But when you see him, oh, he's lovely, isn't he? He is lovely. And if you're a Christian here, just look at Jesus a lot in your life, will you? Because that'll get your heart back. Don't beat yourself up. That's not going to do anything. It's just going to make you tired. (laughs) Look at the Son of God. And if you're not a Christian here, it's a lot of stuff, isn't there? Do you love Jesus? This guy who would volunteer for you. That's the whole show in Christianity. Could this be someone you could invite into your life? 